Salam and welcome everyone to another episode of the Ajam Media Collective Podcast's Indian Ocean series. This is your host, Aliya Karjuravari, together with my colleague, Lindsay Stevenson. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Ali. Who heads the Indian Ocean series. We are joined today by Dr. Jyoti Gulati Balachandran, an assistant professor of history at Penn State University, to discuss her recent book, Narrative Pasts, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, 1400-1650. This was published in spring of 2020 by Oxford University Press. Jyoti, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. So Jyoti, could you start us with situating Gujarat historically, and particularly what is the history of Islam in Gujarat before 1400? So Gujarat is, of course, in the northwest part of the Indian subcontinent. It is connected across the Western Indian Ocean to the Red Sea region. So in some senses, even before the emergence of Islam, you see Arab sailors settling on the coasts of Gujarat and establishing communities. And once we see the emergence of Islam in the 7th century, Merchant communities are one of the first ways in which Muslims begin to make their presence felt in the region of Gujarat. Recent archaeological excavations would even suggest that you would find Muslim merchant communities not only across the coast of Gujarat in places like Kambay or Kambahat or Randeir, but also further interior into Gujarat. So over the course of the 11th, 12th and 13th century, we do see the presence of merchant communities both on the coast of Gujarat and further in the interior. Now, of course, there are a lot of political developments that are taking place in the 13th century in Northwest India, primarily the establishment of the Delhi Sultanate. So over the course of the 13th century, you also see the attempts of Delhi sultans to conquer places in Gujarat. And part of that motivation, of course, comes because Gujarat has such an important role in the Indian Ocean trade. So in the late 13th century, we have the city of Patan in North Gujarat that is conquered by the Delhi Sultan Alauddin Khilji. It becomes more or less like a garrison town, but it becomes kind of like a provincial capital for the Delhi Sultans that leads to the migration and settlement of a diverse set of Muslims in Gujarat, primarily learned men and Sufis. Of course, you also have military commanders. So that is another way in which you can see the expansion of Muslim community in this region. Of course, there's also a strong Ismaili presence in parts of Gujarat, including in places like Patan. So by the time we come to the turn of the 15th century, this region has a substantial presence of Muslims of a diverse economic, social, and religious background. But 15th century, and we can talk about this more, is in many ways an important shift in the history of the Muslim community in Gujarat, and that pertains to the emergence of a regional sultanate in Gujarat. Just as a quick follow-up then, you draw this picture of these merchants as being diverse. Are they also ethnically diverse? Yes, absolutely. So we have merchants from Iran, we have Arab merchants, and there's a fair amount of historical literature that has been around for a while now that talks about the autonomy of some of these trading communities and how they were very much embedded in the local context, which was not necessarily one that was governed by Muslim rulers, 
prior to, let's say, the 14th or the 15th century. So we have examples of, yes, an ethnically diverse community of Muslims, primarily Muslim traders, carrying on their trade and their settlement in an environment that is actually nurtured by rulers who are not followers of Islam. You've given us a really good picture of these different communities sort of converging right before the 15th century. What happens in the 1400s that starts to change the nature of these historical communities? If you think about these fairly extensive merchant communities that are present in different parts of Gujarat, how do we know about them? Right? How do we know about the people? How do we know about their social world and social relationships? So before 1400s, our knowledge is really limited by the nature of inscriptional and architectural material that can tell us or give us some insights into these merchant communities. And because of the nature of these kinds of sources available to us, our knowledge about the social world of these merchant communities is fairly limited. For example, we have epitaphs right, that will mention, okay, here, this is merchant who came from Kazarun, who's buried here, and maybe you'll be lucky enough to find another epitaph that makes some association with this merchant who came from Kazarun, and you can start building some kind of a genealogy or some kind of social relationships. So our understanding of the nature of the social world of these merchant communities is very limited. But when we come to the 15th century, you see a convergence of a few things. You have a new state formation in the form of the Gujarat Sultanate in this region. And at the same time, you have the proliferation of spiritual lineages in the region. And when they converge, that leads to the production of a variety of Persian texts. And again, this is not something that's unique to Gujarat. This is a process that we see in different parts of North India, in the Deccan, in Bengal, that when you have rulers, they want to present themselves in texts. So you have the Tawarik or the official state histories that are written in the courts of Gujarat, talking about the military victories of the Gujarat sultans. But at the same time, you have another set of texts written by Sufis, their disciples and descendants in Gujarat, that actually, unlike the Tawarik, provide us a greater social dimension to the Muslim community in Gujarat. Because here are these texts that are going to tell you about the lineages, the genealogies, the marital alliances, the relationships of learned men with each other, and so on and so forth. So what changes in the 15th century is the emergence of the production of a variety of texts that can give us a much deeper understanding of the social world of Muslim communities in Gujarat. So are you suggesting that Persian is a kind of lingua franca in these different spaces amongst the merchant community, also at court, and then in Sufi circles as well? Yes. So by the time we come to 1400, and there is a burgeoning scholarship now that really you know, talks about this Persianate world or the Persian cosmopolis, where Persian is definitely the language of the court in various places in the subcontinent. And Persian is the language in which Sufis are also writing their texts. Although, you know, we should remember that Persian, while it's a cosmopolitan language, it doesn't mean that there were not other vernaculars that were also used for similar kinds of writings, 
especially when we talk about Sufi literature. But in Gujarat, by the time we come to the early 1400s, there is a very fairly well-established tradition of Persian historiography developed, for example, at the courts of Delhi or developed by Sufis in North India and the Deccan. And this is one of the things that I try and demonstrate in my book, that often when we think about Gujarat and its location, we are reminded of the maritime context of Gujarat. But I think it's really important to also think about these literary and narrative processes that had shaped Muslim settlements in different parts of the Indian subcontinent. And Gujarat in the 1400s, in the 1500s, the people, Muslims, the Sufis, the Sultans, are very much in conversation with these processes that had developed and continued to develop in other parts of the Indian subcontinent. One thing that you do beautifully in this book is that you really take seriously a lot of texts that frequently are sort of swiped away as hagiographical or, you know, being miracle stories. And you're taking not only them seriously as works of narrative, but also thinking about the various genres that they actually identify as. So could you tell us a bit more, first of all, how does genre work here and what are the genres that you're looking at? When I look at the Sufi textual corpus in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century Gujarat, it is very clear that the disciples and the descendants who are writing these texts are making conscious decisions about how they label their texts, whether they use malfuzat, which are the compilations of oral teachings of Sufis in the titles of their work, or they present their work as a teskira, which is more like a biography. And as I was looking at these texts, I came to understand that it is actually very important to take those decisions very, very seriously, because that really tells you a lot about what the authors might be trying to accomplish in their texts. Because again, by the middle of the 15th century, the Sufi disciples and descendants who are writing texts around the Sufis in Gujarat understand that these texts have certain stylistic genealogies, that they have certain discursive strategies that have been very, very useful in other contexts, in other parts of the Indian subcontinent. That was one reason why I thought that hagiography doesn't actually do justice to these conscious decisions that these authors were making in presenting their texts as certain kinds of works. Of course, hagiography also immediately leads us to imagine a text which has exaggerated accounts about the lives and, you know, miracles. And to certain sections of readers, it might appear that, oh, these are not history, that these are all about supernatural elements and and things like that. And I think over the last 25, 50 years, there's been clear shift in understanding these texts and even the miracles in them, not in a literal sense, that these texts should not be mined for empirical information, but our focus needs to shift to what was the mental makeup of the authors who were writing these texts and what did they mean to achieve by including those kinds of things in these texts and not judge them by our modern standards of what is possible and what is not possible. So where are you finding these narratives that you're talking about? I mean, researchers typically are going to state archives, and it doesn't sound like the kind of material that you might find there. Well, I did do my usual archival work because that's what I focused on when I started to work on Gujarat for my PhD. So going to even the National Archives in Delhi, going to a couple of state archives in Gujarat, I was told about the Pir Muhammad Shah 
Shah Library in Gujarat that actually houses a variety of manuscripts. And they have been working with the Iran embassy in Delhi to digitize many of those manuscripts. So I went to the usual spots where you would expect to find manuscripts. But as I got to know people in Gujarat and I did my archival work, it became very clear to me that this is only one way of learning about the manuscripts that have survived, that there are actually a number of people who continue to house manuscripts produced in the 16th and the 17th century in their private collections. I guess I was not completely unaware because some of the articles that I read by scholars like Zia Desai, they had mentioned that it's been so difficult to access these manuscripts in shrine libraries. So I was hoping that there would be an opportunity for me to actually get to some of these personal collections that were housed by the descendants, actually, of these 15th century Sufis that I looked at. And I was, in the end, very lucky. I did find somebody who welcomed me to his house in Mangrol, a small fishing town in coastal Gujarat. And he opened his library to me and I was like, wow, this is, <laughs> why is this not preserved in an archive? And this person actually was invested in preserving these manuscripts. So it was not like, I don't know what's in there. I don't care about this. He continues to transcribe these manuscripts. He continues to try and translate them, translate these Persian manuscripts into Urdu and Gujarati so they are accessible to a wider audience. So in terms of like amount, it's not like I got a lot out of that library, but still it was enough to show me the diversity of the corpus of the Sufi literature that I was looking at and how, of course, it continues to be very relevant to the descendants of especially the Sohravardis that I talk about in my book. So what would you say is the difference between these family archives, shrine archives, and the state archives? How do they paint different pictures? I think to some extent, it's kind of an artificial division between family, state, and shrine archives because Many of the texts that I found in state and Shran archives were the kind of texts that I also found in family archives. So, for example, a compilation of oral teachings. And sometimes, actually, I would find one part of a text in a family archive and another part in a state archive. So, in some ways, putting all of these archives together actually gave me a fuller picture it wasn't a contrasting picture necessarily, but a fuller picture of the textual production that took place in Gujarat between the 15th and the 17th centuries. You actually really talk a lot about the role of shrines in both the preservation and patronage of these texts. So not just when they're sourced, but the recopying and maintaining these texts. And you actually have this phrasing of manuscripts as portable and circulatory artifacts, which I found to be a really wonderful description. So... Can you, first of all, talk more about this sort of what you call the interface between shrines and manuscripts? What does that do for us in terms of understanding the Muslim community of Gujarat and its past? When you think about manuscripts in the context of their dissemination, and you think about shrine and why they're popular, and how do we know about who's buried in this shrine— I think it becomes really clear that one cannot talk about Sufi texts and Sufi shrines separate from one another. In my book, I talk about the Sauravardi Silsara, right? So you have in the 15th century a couple of Sauravardis who settled down in Gujarat, but you don't see much textual 
compilation around the lives of those Suravardis until you come to the 17th century. And that production happens at the hands of the descendants of the Suravardi, who are also caretakers of the shrines that come up at the burial site of these 15th century Sufis. So these descendants become increasingly invested in writing about the Sufis who were buried at these shrines that they were taking care of. So in one sense, the way we can understand these manuscripts and their relationship with shrines is how people who are the caretakers of shrines need to invest in memorializing textually the lives of Sufis who were buried there. At the same time, the manuscripts are able to maintain their relevance in the context of the shrine because this is where pilgrims and followers and disciples can orally listen to the lives and the wisdom of the Sufis, all of which has been transcribed in texts over multiple generations. So I think it's really important to think about text and shrines as reinforcing in some ways the relevance of one another. You've been talking about shrines, and I'm thinking of them as sort of individual islands. But in your book, actually, the Sufis and the shrines form a network. Can you talk about how Sufis and Sufi networks work to create this Muslim community in Gujarat that's not just this sort of individual merchants, but actually a full-flung community? What are the Sufi tariqas that you're talking about here? In my book, I talk about three foundational Sufis in Gujarat, all of whom settle around the beginning of the 15th century. There is Ahmad Khattu, who belongs to the Maghrabiya Salsala. And Maghrabiya Salsala, as the name suggests, from Maghrib, not very well known, actually, in the Indian subcontinent. The, you know, the heavyweights in this time period are the Chishtis and the Soravardis. You have a little bit of Chishti presence in Gujarat as well. But again, there's not much textual corpus that tells us a lot about Chishti Sufis and who they are in Gujarat. So you really have Ahmad Khattu in the 15th century, belonging to this relatively not that well-known silsila, and then the Soravardis. An important center for Soravardis is in Uch near Multan, and it is one of the branches of the Soravardis from Uch that migrates to Gujarat at the turn of the 15th century. And as I mentioned at the beginning, So with the settlement of these Sufis and the gathering of disciples and followers around these Sufis, you see the beginnings of textual production. You see the beginnings of the compilation of oral teachings of these Sufis. And later on, you see the beginnings of biographical literature on the lives of these specific Sufis. And this is where one can start to see how Sufi networks, networks of masters and disciples, begin to give a sense for the formation of a community with a specific regional orientation. As I mentioned earlier, these are the texts where you can get a certain kind of social dimension, which is really hard to pin down in state histories, the tawarikh, that are for the most part about the military victories of sultans. And by inscribing genealogies, by inscribing relationships of friendship, 
of spiritual initiation, of religious education, and mapping them on to different cities that come up in the 15th century in Gujarat, we get a great sense for how this initial community that starts to take shape in Ahmedabad, because it's the capital of the Gujarat Sultans, actually begins to expand to other parts of Gujarat. And these texts, in some ways, then bring together this idea of this expanding borders of a region, expanding borders that are defined not necessarily by the military victories of the Gujarat Sultans, but by the proliferation of this network of Sufi masters and disciples in different parts of Gujarat. So could you tell us more then about Ahmad Katu, who's, who's such a central figure in the book in a sense? Is all we know about him that he was in the Maghrebiya order or... Is there more that we know, like, who was he? When did he come? Before we can get into how his memory is used by others after his death. One thing I really found fascinating about Ahmed Khatu was that he's not a very well-known figure in the late 14th, early 15th century. I should probably mention that actually we do know a lot about his life, thanks to his disciples who decided to compile his teachings and his life experiences in the Malfazat. And so through these texts, we do know that There is this tradition that says that he belonged to a military commander's family in Delhi when there was a dust storm that carried him away with a caravan. And then he's discovered by this Sufi of this Maghribiya Silsila, Baba Ishaq. And he takes him under his discipleship and he grows up in Khattu, which is a town in northern Rajasthan. And he's very much moving in the north and the northwestern part of the subcontinent. So we know that he makes these frequent trips to Delhi. He is hanging out with the political elites of Delhi. He is visiting this popular Khan-e-Jahan masjid. These texts often also tell us about his encounters with Delhi sultans and with members of other spiritual silsilas, actually, including Jalaluddin Hossein Khari, the great Sauravardi Sufi, again, who makes frequent trips to Delhi. Despite all that, when Ahmad Khattu moves to Gujarat at the turn of the 15th century, he's not a very well-known figure. He's not like Muhammad Gesudaraz, who goes on to settle in Gulbarga, a prominent Chishti Sufi. So when Sheikh Ahmad Khattu, at the request of the first Gujarat Sultan, he actually settled in Gujarat. We know that he was actually on his way to Deccan first, but he's intercepted. And the Gujarat Sultan actually requests him and not Muhammad Gesudaraz, who actually at around the same time is in the area before he moves on to Gulbarga. Um, so Zafar Khan, the future Muzaffar Shah, the first Sultan of Gujarat, actually asks Ahmad Khattu to settle down in Gujarat and not leave because by this time, Sultans and Sufis are very much collaborators. Sultans are looking for spiritual allegiances to Sufis. But it's really fascinating because Ahmad Khattu is actually not a very well-known figure. And maybe that's why he was more attractive to the Gujarat Sultan than the more famous Muhammad Gezudaraz. So Ahmad Khattu settles in Sarkej, which is a suburb of Ahmedabad. And Ahmedabad, by the way, comes into existence in 1411 when Sultan Ahmad Shah establishes the foundations of the city. And there are a lot of, again, narrative descriptions of how the very foundation of the city of Ahmedabad was laid by four Ahmads, of which Ahmad Khattu was one of them. So you can see that from the very beginning of this textual inscription of the Sufi, he is 
given this foundational role in the establishment of the capital and in the prosperity of the Gujarat Sultanate. So the connection between Sufism and kings is already established in his life, right? And this is actually something that we're seeing across the Islamic world, in a sense, in the 14th to 15th centuries, this relationship between sultans and Sufis. You make this point that like, there's this notion that there's a spiritual walaya over land. There's an understanding that these Sufis have a sovereignty over the land. Would you say equal to that of sultans, more than that of sultans? I think, again, by the time we come to this time period, I think it's really a matter of collaboration. Of course, you would still find very formulaic elaborations on how the Sufi is greater than the Sultan, that Sufi's spiritual authority is superior to the material, the temporal authority of the Sultan. But I think there is a way in which you can disintegrate these formulaic tropes to see that what's really going on on the ground is much more of a collaboration. It's more about how Sultan's in conjunction with Sufis, can ensure that the Muslim community expands and prospers. It's a collaborative vision that sultans alone cannot accomplish. And the Sufis alone cannot accomplish as well. Because Sufis need straight patronage. They need institutions that will support their presence in the region. So I think a better way of thinking about the relationship between the sultans and the Sufis, at least by this time, you do have a different kind of relationship when you're thinking about the early 13th century, but clearly by the time we come to the 15th century, a collaboration is desired both by the sultans and by the Sufis. You mentioned that it's formulaic. In a sense, it's becoming the norm, as you as you mentioned about Gulbarga, and you're also having it in the Timurid realm, like this is, I mean, Sufism is integral to politics at this time. There is no politics without Sufism. But in a sense, you're also depicting a picture that Sufism is part and parcel of region formation here. Would you say that? Yes, absolutely. And I think in some respects, this goes back to the question that Lindsay was asking me earlier about networks, right? And the formation of a certain conception of a region in which Sufis actually play a way more important role. And so whether you look at Tawariq or whether you look at Sufi texts, and that's actually another important thing to bear in mind, is that oftentimes the history of the Muslim community in Gujarat is told from the perspective of the state. Uh, it's supposed to reside in these Tawariq texts. But if you actually put Tawariq texts in conversation with the production of texts by Sufis, there is considerable overlap in these texts. So what we are seeing is that just as the Gujarat sultans are militarily defining a certain conception of a regional kingdom, in the same way, the Sufis are also very much part of that conception of a region because of their collaboration with the sultans, because of their network of disciples and followers because of the relationships that they form with other learned men who are kind of dispersed in Gujarat. So I think Sufis are in many ways the heroes of the story of region formation because it is in these texts, as I said before, that you can really get the social dimension and the conception that there is a region and this region is prospering because of the presence of certain Sufis and their network of disciples. You talk about this, like the, the use of Malfuzat, shrines and khanagas being this center where a Sufi order can reach actual society. This is also a time where we're not just talking about merchant communities anymore, right? We're talking about Islamization in a sense. 
So would you say they were able to reach different levels of society in a way that sultans couldn't? I think absolutely, because again, if you think about somebody like Ahmad Khattu or the Suravardi shrines that emerge in the 16th and the 17th century, the political context changes, right? The Gujarat sultans are not around forever. The Mughals come and conquer Gujarat. But the lives of these Sufis, especially the construction of shrines to these Sufis, is a phenomenon that cuts across the changes in the politics of the region. And in fact, their presence makes sure that a new political dispensation will have to take into account the popular support that certain Sufis enjoy in the region. So I would definitely say that Sufi lineages, because of this kind of network of followers and network of disciples and a larger reception by to buy a diverse community, right? So these Sufi shrines, for example, are not merely catering to the interests of the Muslim population. There are all kinds of stories about these Sufis, for example, their ability to grant sons, their ability to cure, to heal, that emerge over generations. And those kinds of stories are appealing to the larger regional community, to people who are Muslims or who are not Muslims as well. So I would definitely say that the reach of the Sufis in some ways was much greater than those of the sultans. Though, of course, there's one interesting thing worth pointing out that the way, especially in the case of Ahmad Khattu, how his authority is appropriated by the Gujarat sultans through the addition of royal funerary monuments within his shrine complex. And, of course, the addition of palatial structures as well in this complex would show that as long as Ahmad Khattu is remembered, the Gujarat sultans are remembered as well. So oftentimes when I visited the Ahmad Khattu's shrine in Sarkage, I would see people praying at the tomb of Sheikh Ahmad Khattu, and then they would walk over to where the tombs of the Gujarat sultans were, and then they would offer their prayers there as well. So I think there is at least that one exception to that, where you would see anybody visiting Sheikh Ahmad Khattu would actually also remember the context in which Ahmad Khattu received this popularity to begin with. To go back to this idea of the Sufis being so key in the formation of regions, I'm curious about the basis of the reach of the Sufis. Are the networks formed on the basis of economic networks, language, geography. I always come across religious figures. It seems like they have their feet in two different places, like they're merchants on the side, and then they have their religious communities on the other side. And so I'm wondering, what is shaping the direction that these networks are oriented in? One thing, again, to remember is that while we are looking at the role of these specific Sufis in the formation of the region of Gujarat, they are still very much embedded in transregional networks. They do not shy away, for example, from talking about how they were initiated by Sufi lineages that are outside of the Indian subcontinent in places like Iran, for example, or in Central Asia. We get some sense of the movement of these Sufis, and sometimes, yes, they are also involved in monetary transactions. They are also involved in trade, and you get just, it's very hard to actually recover those kinds of details, given the nature of the Sufi texts that largely talk about certain aspects of their lives and talks about their teachings. 
Going back to the question of afterlife of the lives of these Sufis, I mean, it seems as if when they're alive, they're these like nodes that keep moving. And then once they die and are entombed, that becomes a fixed node. And in a sense, it becomes a fixed node, not just for that particular Sufi order, but also for Islamic power. And I really found it interesting when you mentioned that the sultans are burying themselves there and sort of integrating themselves into that routinized barakah that they can be like, well, you're coming there to pray. Now, could you first tell us, so at the shrine itself, obviously the sultan's grave, they're smaller than the actual Sufi shrine, right? So in the case of Ahmed Khatu's shrine complex in Sarkage, it's not really that the tombs of the Gujarat sultans are bigger than Sheikh Ahmed Khatu's. In fact, the complex that surrounds the tomb of Sheikh Ahmed Khatu is much more ornate and is much bigger, whereas um, you have these uh, tombs of two Gujarat sultans and the wife of one of the sultans buried right next to each other in a smaller room. But in a sense, you're right, because each time I've gone to Sarkage to visit Sheikh Ahmed Khatu's tomb, I see people offering their prayers at the Sufi's tomb, and then they walk over to the tombs of the Gujarat sultans, and then they pay their respects there as well. So I think this was very ingenious of the Gujarat sultans to actually add their funerary uh, monuments right within the complex. And so each time you think about Sheikh Ahmed Khatu, each time you think about his life, you are bound to think about the Gujarat Sultans and their Sultanate under which Ahmed Khatu received his prominence and under whose spiritual mentorship the Muslim community in Gujarat uh, prospered. So it is actually very difficult to separate the Sufi from the Sultan. In the case of the Sauravardi shrines, you do not see the same kind of co-option that you see in the case of Sheikh Ahmed Khatu's shrine complex. But there as well, you, know, you have institutional patronage that continues from the period of the Gujarat sultans down to the Mughals when they conquered Gujarat towards the end of the 16th century. So in some ways, whether very explicitly or not so explicitly, the relationship between the Sufis and the political dispensation in Gujarat is hard to separate. So what happens when the Mughals come? So it's interesting to note that um, Many of us are familiar with Fatehpur Sikri, the capital that um, the Mughal Emperor Akbar established, and the presence of the tomb of Salim Shishti within the palatial structures of Fatehpur Sikri. You actually had Mahmud Begra way before um, Akbar did this. You know, Mahmud Begra added these royal tombs to the complex of Sheikh Ahmed Khatu, as well as palatial structures, kingly quarters, queen's quarters in the Sarkage complex. And this was a site that the sultans went to for recreation, to be away from all the business of running a state. When the Mughals come into the region, they have to acknowledge the prominence and the popularity that these 15th century Sufis have acquired in the region by that time period. Um, they cannot displace the texts that have been written around the Sufis of uh, 15th century Gujarat. In fact, the Sufi Taskirat written under the Mughals actually tap into this textual archive that is available to them from 15th and 16th century Gujarat to then talk about the alia of, of Gujarat. Another thing that is interesting to note here is that while in imperial histories written under the Mughal emperors, you have a sense of you know, different regions forming the subcontinental polity under the Mughals, if you look at the textual production going on 
in Gujarat around the same time period in these Sufi texts, there is actually an assertion of regional identity. They do not want to be subsumed within Mughal imperial histories. They assert their belonging to Gujarat, their multi-generational relationship to, to the region. Um, and in terms of the shrines, uh, these Sufi shrines continue to receive financial support, especially uh, from the Mughals. Uh, Jahangir in his memoir talks about visiting uh, the shrines of Ahmad Khatu, visiting uh, and of, of the Soravardis, um, meeting up with the descendants of the Soravardis, giving them land grants and endowments and, you know, and, and robes of honor, so on and so forth. So when the Mughals come in, uh, they basically have to, uh, to acknowledge and continue the support that the Gujarat sultans had established for these Sufis in Gujarat in the 15th century. So thinking towards the future then, the question that comes up, and this is past sort of your book that you mentioned in the epilogue, is so what happens in today's Gujarat? How do Muslims and non-Muslims grapple with these pasts? Is the shrine still there? What happens to the shrine? What happens to this past? What happens to these narratives today? So what happens in the modern period is a very complex question. In terms of shrines, um, the fortunes of Ahmed Khatu's shrines actually turned for better um, around the turn of the 21st century. The site had mostly been abandoned. It had uh, completely become disconnected from the metropolis of Ahmedabad that continued to develop commercially. Um, Sarkage really became part of a very rural environment. But slowly, gradually, with the efforts of one NGO and also some government initiatives, there has been a lot of energy spent in in preserving Sheikh Ahmed Khatu's uh, shrine. There used to be a lake that dried up, so there have been efforts to you know bring water back to the lake, um, and. It has essentially become a tourist destination now. So if you're going to Ahmedabad, Sarkage and Ahmed Khatu's shrine would be one of the places recommended to actually get away from all the all the chaos of of of, of being in a city. So if you want some relaxation, you go to to you go to Sarkage. The Sorabadi shrines, their story is slightly different because because of the presence of the descendants of the Soravardi Sufis who continue to be, and actually continue to this day, to be the caretakers of these shrines, these shrines never went out of use the way Ahmed Khatu's shrine did. So you continue to have a large set of people who, who are pilgrims to these Soravardi shrines who come there, offer their respects, um, take blessings from the buried Sufis. And because of that, these are very much like living uh, monuments, you know, living monuments in the, in the surrounding community. Going back to what you said about Sufism, you, you paint this picture of an incredibly sort of diverse world. But even if the Muslim community is diverse, in a sense, the, what, I, what I feel is that around this time in the 14th to 15th century, even if someone is not a Sufi, they can't escape Sufism. And I'm thinking also, like, even in terms of, like, the Ismaili community, I mean, in Gujarat during this period, this is an important period also for the formation of the Ismaili community, right? And in a sense, even the Ismaili community, like, in terms of titlature, I, I don't know that much about this, but they, they call themselves peers. Uh, that is, the language of Sufism, even among non-Sufis, is so deeply embedded that even in terms of competition between different Sufi orders, I mean, narrative becomes how they negotiate difference. In a sense, you can't escape it. And, and this is also part of like what you're doing with narrative in a sense too, right? In terms of narratives, I think what is interesting to note is that if you go to a bookstore, you know, try and find uh, history books for medieval and early modern Gujarat, 
There is one set that belongs to the lives and teachings of various Sufis and other learned men in Gujarat from this time period. But that is usually cast into the category of like religious literature. These are religious spiritual men who really were not part of the story of Sultanate and Mughal Gujarat the same way the sultans and Mughal emperors are, right? So there's one set of narratives that you find there that inform the general public about this time period. And on the other hand, you have this rehashing of colonial narratives on the history of Gujarat that were written in the 19th century. So there is a real disjuncture between how a common person, how a layman understands the history of Gujarat. And there has actually not much work being done on medieval and early modern Gujarat to dislodge some of these deep-seated prejudices that continue to define modern India, especially in terms of the vilification of Muslims and the Muslim past in the Indian subcontinent. Jyoti, thank you so much for joining us. We've taken a lot of your time. For our listeners, that was Dr. Jyoti Gulati Balachandran, Assistant Professor of History at Penn State, and her book, which is out now, so you should all get it, is called Narrative Pasts, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, and it was published by Oxford University Press. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.